On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Whit Johnson of Meriwether Cycles. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to someone in the bike frame building world about the subject of bicycle frame building. And so usually that's bike frame builders. And this week is no different. We're talking to Whit Johnson of Meriwether Cycles and uh, and he's in Northern California. And so we talk about, um, I really like getting at ideas. And so in this episode, we actually talk quite a bit about technique and process things, which is always fun. Uh, you know, of course I'm a nerd about that. And I think most frame builders love the the nuts and bolts of you know, how the bikes get made and what the, what the hurdles are and what problems we're solving technically. But uh, I also love one of the themes of this show is just talking to people about ideas. And frame builders have all different ideas and come from different sort of perspectives. Some people are chasing the artistry and trying to do new and novel things. You know, I'm thinking of like my interview with, from uh, Eric from Peacock Groove and, you know, he, he makes a lot of very novel bikes that are just like a very loud statement. Uh, some of our some of our guests are making very refined, uh, you know, more classic and just beautiful bikes. I'm thinking of like Brian Chapman is just making uh, bikes with you know similar techniques to what people would have done, uh, you know, maybe in decades past. Uh, but he's just doing it very artfully. Some people are um, pushing the boundaries with certain kind of technological processes. I'm thinking like Julie Padalino is you know integrating fourth axis bent, benchtop CNC milling to save work uh, in her process. That's freaking cool. And Drew from Engine Cycles has the CNC machines so that he can make uh, all of the things for his bikes that he feels uh, he, he wants to make differently than what's offered. That's cool. Uh, you know, we talk about business with some different frame builders and, you know, that's obviously a big component of it all if you're, if you're trying to run a business and support yourself because it is tough business uh, as a frame builder. Uh, for a lot of reasons, it's tough. And so I think it's interesting to talk about that because not everybody does. And so if you can bring out those conversations, uh, you know, maybe we can all learn from that. And so I think it's really interesting to talk about ideas. In this episode, we do talk more about the nuts and bolts and the technical stuff than I um, sometimes get into in other episodes. And we also talk some about the ideas. One of the things that we get into later in the episode here is, uh, you know, about how Wit feels the uh, the role of the custom builder or what he likes to do is to actually, you know, entertain that sort of, you know, um, you know, your customer wants something that they can't get somewhere else. And like, would you make that for them? And so he feels like that's pretty cool and special. And he does that. And you'll hear some other builders talk about how, you know, like, this is my product line, you know, take it or leave it. This is my bike. And I think both of those make sense for, for the right person to do one or the other. Uh, and, and so it's cool to get uh, Wit's perspective about, you know, why he does it the way that he does it. So I wanted to talk to Wit about his story. You know, he, he grew up in, um, in California in sort of like the birthplace of mountain biking in, uh, in Marin area. And so, um, you know, he's always been into bikes and mountain biking and he wanted to be into frame building for a long time. And it took him a while to get into it. So I think he took a frame building class in the, in the mid 2000s or the late uh, 2000 aughts there. And then uh, has been building bike frames since and uh, has made a lot of bike frames now. And I think it's his full-time work. 
And so, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see the bikes that he makes are a little bit eclectic. I've seen he does, you know, recently, I think he did a 36 inch wheel mountain bike and he'll do, uh, bikes with elevated chain stays. Uh, they're mostly steel, but he's getting into titanium more and more, which is cool. And we talk about that some, and so there's, uh, he makes, you know, a wider variety of bikes than you might see from some other builders. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I he does a lot of, uh, forks. And we talk about, you know, the utility of a steel fork for being able to control variables and for its ride characteristics. And so uh, I, I had a lovely conversation with Wit. I would I feel like the nerd factor, the like the geeking out talking about frame building nerdery factory is a little bit higher in this one than usual, which is uh, a treat. And so uh, anyway, uh, where we cut into the interview, I was kind of having Wit bring us up to speed on his background where... Um, he was telling us about where he grew up and about how he always wanted to get into frame building and, uh, you know, when he took his first frame building class and where he took it from there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always been interested in frame building because I mean, I going way back, I grew up in Marin County, California, now the proposed birthplace of mountain bike. And so oh, I see, nice. I mean, it's surreal to think, but I was, it, it was just, it was just one of those it's hard to describe. I would see Potts bikes and Richie's and like the first mountain bikes. Cause I'm 47 now. So that was back in the early eighties when I was riding mountain bikes on Tam. And it was, you would see like my friend had a Potts tandem and they'd ride up Tam oh. and I'd, I, you know, I'd try and keep up with them on the uphill and downhill. It was nuts. They were in high school and they were just, they were just so psycho downhill fast. But <laughs> so then, you know, my, it's just that it's, it's a trip to, 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 to kind of look back at that because, I mean, Mark from Paragon, he went to my high school way back and then Rick Hunter and Cam Falconer. Um, and it's just this, you know, you go there, you just kind of feel the energy of mountain biking. Yeah, and when you just... go on the mountain, you'd see all these gold guys just like riding these salsas and all the bikes came from that area, that era in that area at that time. So it was a trip. You see the breezers and the, I just love the breezers with their, mm -hmm. uh, the head badge and the paint. But anyway, so yeah, that kind of got the frame building bug instilled in me at an early age. And I, you know, I had no clue about what it really took to do it, but years later when I took that welding class, that was kind of in the back of my head. I, I'd love to learn how to weld frames, but you know, I had no metal working experience before, you know, before that. So just kind of carpentry work for, you know, doing with my stepdad on houses and stuff. So, uh, anyway, the, the course taught you how to metal, uh, you know, TIG, TIG and MIG and just, uh, mostly just the old school way of, uh, brazing, um, and then after that, I took a week-long class with a guy named Chris Kopp in Denver. And so he worked for Yeti for a few years, I think, as a master frame builder. And I don't know if he's still around doing his own frames, but he, at the time he had a shop in Denver and he was doing his own bike frames and stuff. And he's a kind of a um, Indy 500 fabrication guy, so race car stuff. Mm -hmm. So he's awesome welder. Um, but I went in that class. I mean, it was only one-on-one, -on -one, but I still went in that such a noob. I didn't, I knew nothing. Like I could, I could MIG weld, but that was it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so TIG welding was like a different world. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was kind of crazy. That was just an awakening. So that was so a one week, that, that was a one week class. And you, in that time you learned, yeah. you learned, like you came out of that with uh, a TIG welded bike frame. 
I did come out with a TIG welded bike frame, but yeah, there was more covered up holes in that frame than I would like to admit. Like it was just nuts. <laughs> so bad. I mean, everybody's first kick frame is probably like oh, that, yeah. but it was, I don't know. It was embarrassing, but yeah, it looks nice if with paint on top, but um, yeah, I wouldn't, I have it. I still have it. Of course, everybody has their first frames, but mm-hmm. um, that was it around 2009 spring. And then, after that, you know, I, he, he taught, I did, I think a two day kind of weekend thing where he kind of went over TIG welding. So then when you go into the class, you, you, you don't just start from scratch. Uh, but a week, you know, five days is, is not nearly enough time to, to learn much of anything about frame building, especially when you haven't done anything before. So, um, I was going to take a UBI. I had signed up for a tie course back in 2001 and I got a new job and had to bail on that because you know nobody lets you have two weeks off when you start a new job but so it's always been kind of in in the in the you know trying to get the frame building class going and it just kind of kept getting put off put off put off so i took that that one in denver and it was super close it was only half hour away and i could do it relatively easy so then after that i just bought a tig welder you know which i should have should have done years before but um and then just started cutting up tubes and welding them together until I felt like I was good enough to do my own frames. So I have this, I still have it on my wall, this big, you know, piece. It's, it's like a tube monster where it's just, <laughs> everybody probably does this, you know, you cut it at different angles and then you kind of just weld it all together. So it becomes this big, you know, monster of tubes that are all welded with a horrible weld yeah. together. But um, I think mine was a little bit more. <laughs> mine was a little more boring and straightforward. It was just like a, it was one long tube that's maybe like two feet long, and then it was probably like inch and an eighth in diameter. Yeah. And then I just had a bunch of other ones that that met up with it at pretty you know it was like pretty consistent <laughs> looking. It was more yeah. of like a so more of like a bludgeoning stick. Like I would cut after I did it, I would cut them <laughs> off so they were like they only protruded like a quarter inch yeah. or something, so that I could reuse as much of that that joining tube yeah. as possible and get as many practice joints out of it. And I never made any oh, yeah. cool structures uh, as, as practicing, which would have been good practice well, because those tighter corners and stuff are, are good practice for, you know, like where you're comfortable, it's easier. And where you have, where you're more out yeah. of position is, um, you know, it's the reality of welding stuff. That's definitely, yeah. I mean, that's kind of why I did it. The acute angles are the hardest because, uh, you don't really, I mean, there's a lot of things I take for granted now with welding, but yeah, you need a lot more heat to go into those acute angles and then you have to feather it, you know, when you come into the obtuse, obtuse side. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things you learn by doing those sharp angles that uh, if you just do a straight 90, you won't, you won't figure out for a while. But, but man, I was like, yeah, I just got tubes from McMaster Carr or Aircraft Spruce. And I, I was so dumb at the start that I didn't even, you know, take the, the coating off the outside. <laughs> So I, I didn't know that you had to take the coating off the outside to like, you know, you don't have to, but it, 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 it you, you get a horrible yeah. splatter and it's just not very, pretty well. So I was blowing through stuff. And then the other thing was that, you know, each welder has a, each take machine has their own thing. I learned on a big synchro wave 200 or something. And then I, I got an inverter 185, um, and there's a lot of buttons on it. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I didn't take it to, you know, Chris or any other welder. I just like to suffer on my own in my garage and figure it out on my own. So I just playing with playing with everything. And then, you know, everybody takes for granted that when you use the, the foot pedal, it's not just an on or off, it's a ramp, you know? Yeah. So if you, if you barely kick it on, you can get low amps. And if you floor it, you can get high amps. Well, 
I, for, I don't know how long, probably a month. I, I didn't have the setting set on the, the, the well, uh, on the, on the welder. So it was a ramp up. It was just on or off. And I was blowing through tubes and I was just <laughs> figuring out, I was just, I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? I can't, I cannot get, you know, a good start, you know, a good, a good beat gone. I was blowing through tubes and just getting all frustrated. Most frustrating month of, you know, of the, of the whole process. Anyway, so finally I pushed a button. I'm like, oh, well, I can do this now. So then it was yeah. like, boom, it all, it all made more sense then. Yeah. But it was, it's embarrassing. I mean, you know how it is when you're learning. You don't want to ask stupid questions. So uh-huh. you just kind of just, just hit your head against the wall in your shop and just figure it out eventually. Yeah, I remember but, when I got – I had done a little bit of TIG welding. And when I got my, my own machine set up in my shop, I was so excited. And I went to the, the air gas where I would get my like – you know, my cylinder gas is for my torch rig that I had for a couple of years. And so I went there and I was like, yep, I need to get a bottle of gas for my new TIG welder. I'm so excited or something, you know? And they, yeah, uh, they, yeah. and I, so anyway, they're trying to sell me like a, a mix of like argon <laughs> and CO2. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I need straight argon. And the guy says, no, yeah. no, no. Like, you know, you're welding steels and like, you're going to want, you know, for TIG welding, you're going to want this one. And I'm like, all right. Yeah, like I didn't yeah. think so. <laughs> and it's like Friday afternoon and I get to my shop and I'm like, this oh, is welding for horse shit. Like what's wrong here? And I like look it up and I'm like, yeah, no, I needed straight argon. It was Friday evening. Mm-hmm. And so like my brand new welder, I can't use it all week weekend i was so mad i came back yeah. in and they were like oh there you are yeah i realized after you left that we gave you the wrong one <laughs> and so they swapped it out but it's yeah. like dude it's like you ruined my weekend and like you yeah just, that's, classic. that's the stuff that you don't know when you know you don't know what you don't know, you don't know. Or you, sometimes right. you you yeah. you don't want to be so headstrong as to tell the guy who spends his whole day like handing people tanks of gas that you know better than him but i you know sometimes you know <laughs> sometimes you know better than him <laughs> Well, you do. Yeah. And that's every, there's so many different types of people that come in there. They rarely run across frame builders who need, you know, yeah. <laughs> who weld thin wall. I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're TIG welding steel, it's usually straight argon. So I don't know what was going through his head, but whatever. I don't know what they uh, were talking about. Yeah. And I've heard of people using some helium, but I don't know about, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, there's tons of stories like that. It's just, I don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And then when you do, you just kind of forget about it. And then it takes, mm-hmm. you take it for granted eventually. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah you, so that was my progression of just, yeah. And, and by the time you had taken that class and you got your own machine and did some practice, uh, I, I mean, I remember always seeing your name more in like, I don't know if it's MTBR, but it's like different forums and stuff. I thought you were pretty active mm-hmm. and maybe you had a blog going that I would read sometimes. Uh, I forget if it was blog. Yeah. Did you have blog posts? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I do. I still do. It's my, it's my same. Uh, I mean, for better, or for worse, I've, I've kept it this, all these years. That's great. And I think, I mean, I've got, you know, I think it's funny at NABS, I went to NABS in Salt Lake City, and I think I talked more people, talked to more people there that had, you know, followed my blog throughout the years and actually were care, cared about buying a bike for me. But it was funny because it was, it was a cool, I don't know, it was just cool talking to these guys that I had, had read my blog and saw that I was just kind of upfront and honest about how, what a, what a, you know, doofus I was with learning and, you know, and I, I researched it like, I was getting a degree in bike frame building. So I would go to the forums and I would read everybody's, you know, websites and get little tidbits here and there and kind of just coalesce it into my blog. So not just I could go back to it, 
but others could kind of learn from my mistakes and my research. So it was funny because um, I still go back to my blog when I'm like, how the hell did I do that? And then, then I would just, I'd, I'd actually search my name, Merriweather Cycles, and then, uh, you know, braising for dropouts or something like that. Because if you look, I mean, if you Google certain things about frame building, my blog is one of the first five things that comes yeah. up because I don't know. I just, it just happens to be what I would name it. And it mm-hmm. just, I don't know. But yeah. So I left that up as kind of a historical thing, but I've been told by some frame builders, you know, you should probably take that down because it has all your crappy stuff on there. too. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, it's interesting too, for me, you know, like if I, um, if I want to get search traffic to my website of people who are interested in frame building and who are trying to learn and SEO and all this stuff that I would want as someone who's making and selling tools, uh, you know, that's the kind of resource mm. that I need to have on my website, uh, you know, to just try and get eyeballs uh, at the place where I also have things for sale. And so, um, you know, that's like back burner yeah. for me in addition to the podcast and the YouTube channel and like all the other copy that goes on the website <laughs> and the Instagram posts. And it's just a lot to, yeah. to create, but like I would like to have better resources on my website. And I appreciate uh, that other people also have those because like, you know, in addition to selling stuff, which is great, I also like, yeah. I just, you know, like the community and a lot of what I learned came from people like you who were sharing, you know, maybe you yeah. weren't the authority yeah. on things always when you were writing about it, but at least you were writing about it and you got to have some authority about it over time because you were doing enough of it yeah. to like, to test ideas and to saw what, what would work yeah. and what didn't. Yeah, it was, it was fun kind of, researching and finding things how, how other people did it you know you'd, you'd kind of scour everybody's at that time it was mostly Flickr, and it was yeah. just looking at you know drews drews and garos and everybody's instagram I mean, yeah and flickers and just kind of oh that's that tool look in the back of the shop that's how he's doing slotting the seat stage or whatever and that's how he's that's how they're doing this. So it was really fun to kind of just pick through stuff and, and gather. Cause you know, people are very, you know, forthcoming on their process a lot of times, but I just was the kind of guy who doesn't pick up the phone and ask. I just, I just researched it on my own without bothering people. So just it was that, that was my way of doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yep. I can relate. There's a, there's definitely uh, yeah. like photo feeds of people who, uh, you know, I would just study their stuff because there's, there's a lot of information there. If you take the time to look for it. It's huge. It's endless. I mean, it's kind of crazy because, you can learn a lot. I mean, as you, as you know, from your YouTube channel, you, I mean, people will come to your site to learn how to do stuff. And yeah. I mean, I do it all the time. Like I have a, you know, uh, worn out brake pads in a, in a, in a car and I'll be like, Oh, changing brake pads on a blah, blah, blah truck. Yep. And then it will come up and you'll be able to follow along on the YouTube. It's nuts. So, yeah. um, it's a different world than when, you know, the old guys were learning and apprenticing. So it was, not that's not an option for builders these days most of the time um actually it isn't at all you can do it with some shops where you intern and stuff as you know um black sheep and oddity have that where you can come and intern and make your frame and but you still don't get that repetition and uh you know braising the same joint for 100 Mm -hmm. times a day so yeah, you basically have to do it yourself in your garage at your own expense and on your own time so that's what I did. The first year I didn't build a frame. I just practiced welding and tooled up in different ways of figuring out what I needed, the least amount of stuff I needed in order to build a frame, which is, you know, not a lot, but I, I kind of wanted more, of course. 
machines mm-hmm. are cool, you know. So, yeah, well, um, and it's nice. And they're not all that expensive, it turns out. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's nice to have, um, you know, more than the bare minimum. Because when I was getting started, I didn't have anything. When I, you know, when I first built my own shop that was like my space, I was subletting 200 square feet from this really like hip um cast iron foundry that made it's called burrow furnace they made these really cool cast iron pans from waste vegetable oil and recycled cast iron and really cool stuff but anyway i I subletted 200 square feet which is nothing and i had like i had an 850 pound table that was like blanchard ground steel 32 by 36 inches so that was like my reference surface and i had a bench and a vice and a torch and some hacksaws and hand files and like that was about it i guess i pretty quickly i got like one of those harbor freight mini mills and i would use that to miter tubing and that (laughs) that actually works pretty well it doesn't have any torque yeah and so to keep it from stalling you have to run it really fast and it burns up your cutters really quickly but anyway like i had just a little bit of stuff and you could do it and and i would end up with frames that i was like you know proud of but i've done that and i it's really nice to have a little bit more stuff around because uh it just takes eternity yeah. when you don't have the right tools. And I don't know, I guess I just felt yeah. like I was, I was doing it because the idea of like having a shop and making something that I liked mm. sounded romantic, but like when you don't yeah. have a good way to do anything, it's just, I don't know. I feel like the the reason that I want to do it is that it'd be fun. And it wasn't <laughs> when, you know, I was just like no, constantly I mean, like wishing yeah. I had a better way or something. That's kind of, I mean, there's, there's different personalities and everybody's comes across in their, in their shop setup. It's kind of fun. That's yeah. why it was also fun seeing Drew compared to someone like, uh, well, you know, Richard Sachs or something where mm-hmm. there's no tools, I mean, no machinery. So it's, it's always fun to see different people's shops because you're like, Oh, I can see that one. That person wants dedicated tooling because they don't want to, you know, dick around with, with, uh, filing at all. So mm-hmm. then, um, you know, there's definitely people that can file just as fast or faster than people, yeah. you know, cope tubes on a mill. But I just have that personality where I like having dedicated tooling. Like yeah. I, I'm in my shop right now. I have, you know, my chain stay fixture mounted on my little mini horizontal. It's a diamond M20 and it's supposedly, this is my, this is something I still have yet to confirm, but, um, I bought it from Tom Richie's cousin mm-hmm. in Santa Rosa. And for, and he said, he claimed, I don't know if he was just trying to, you know, sit and sell me the, the, the thing, but it, he said it was Tom's in the, you know, in his early days. So he would miter tubes on it. So that made wow. me want it even more, yeah. but it was only 500 bucks, you know, 500 bucks for a machine. I'm like, that's, that's nothing. Yep. So, you know, and then you can buy, my other machines cost even less than that and they're even twice as heavy. So it's one of those things you're like, it's not that much investment. And if you have a dedicated thing for chain stays, a dedicated main main tube mitering machine, and then you have your, you know, a drill press for all the holes and then you have a a bridge board for kind of everything else. It it makes things faster and that's, and more, I mean, your process just kind of gets dialed in. And, and so I understand, I started to understand, you know, oh, that's why they, ha- they have that many, you know, mm-hmm. that many milling machines is because they don't want to mess with, you know, tramming for the fixture each time that they go yeah. to a different one. So it's just, Yeah. And I don't know if I, sense. I could be wrong on this, but uh, I want to say when I was in Drew's, you know, the engine cycles shop uh, that Drew has in Philadelphia mm-hmm. there. It, he has a big, heavy horizontal mill with the Sputnik main tube mitering fixture, 
And I believe right. what he said was that he could miter the front triangle of a bicycle in eight minutes. And maybe I'm misremembering right. that, uh, but yeah. it seems yeah. reasonable that you could do that when you've done it enough times that it's just sort of a measure once, cut once kind of thing, and you don't need to second guess anything and, and double check. You just yeah. go ahead and do it. And uh, I mean, that's that's freaking fast. If you watch my YouTube channel and you see the <laughs> videos, I did like three or four videos yeah. or something about like mitering the front triangle of my bike. And each one of those, you know, I'm like, I'm talking about what I'm doing and I'm trying to convey ideas. But like, I mean, yeah. I spent like probably eight hours between all, I don't know, maybe six hours. You know, I'm just like trying not to scrap tubes. Yeah. I'm going slow and careful. I have some tools, you know, I have a mill, but like, Every cut, you're yeah. anyway. The right tools really um, they they make you time, oh, you know. Funny. And, and uh, no, it, that blew my mind. I mean, I, I didn't hear about him saying that, but I remember um, Sean at Vertigo said he could do his you know tie front triangles in eleven minutes. And and you know, and the, one of the reasons he did that was because you know there's other stuff going on. He has a kid. He needs to go or you know do work or whatever. Yeah. So. I was like 11 minutes and this was a couple of years ago or something. And that just, that just blew my mind. I, I thought the, the only way you can do that, first of all, you have to have straight tubes. Anything with curves is going to be a little longer just because it's harder to set up. But yep. in my opinion, um, but you also have to have fixtures that have indicators and you, you trust those, yep. you know, you can set it up and you know, it's going to cut to that length. So yep. you, you, you're, you know, your, your bike CAD tells you it's going to be five, 600, you know, millimeter long and you put it in the, the main tube minor fixture and boom, it's 600. So that, that getting that dialed in, it sounds real easy, but it's not, it's, mm -hmm. it's, um, you know, well, like most, most fixtures don't have those indicator lines. And if they do, you still have a little bit of learning curve yep. to figure out, you know. Yeah. And if you look at, um, if you look at the way most frame builders miter tubes with the, the hole saws, um, you know, those are not a precision tool and they have run out and you can get a really yeah, good result yeah. if you're patient and you have experience. But, uh, when you talk about like, um, making the cuts for like a top tube, like the center to center length, because of that run yeah. out, it makes it actually really hard to get it repeatability. And so you need to know either yeah. how to, how to like account for that or else you need to use, yeah something a little more precise in the first place. And so like, there's all different ways to do it, but like when you hear someone who is fussy and does care about the fit up, say that they can get a result in like eight minutes. It's like, wow, they must really, yeah. they must really have, you know, figured it out, uh, how, what works for them because that's, that's totally, I mean, that's, that's the thing that I realized is that it, it used to frustrate me because I would, you know, you compare yourself to other builders. You're like, how does that guy do it in this <laughs> amount of time? And, um, Eventually, you just, you know, you could, you could, you could do it. You can do it in your own time. But then, um, what am I trying to say? Like, imagine if you put yourself into someone else's shop. Like, you are so familiar with your tools and how to set it up and how everything's situated that if you were to, you know, make a bike frame a day in your shop and then you go to someone else's shop, it might take three days because you're like, what the hell is this guy doing? I don't know what this is, and this is this fixture's new to me. Mm -hmm. Once I realized that. You know, once I realized that every fixture has a learning curve and every, you know, every machine has a learning curve and, you know, because there's different amounts of backlash, each machine has uh, different gradations, you know, it might be like a bridge port or my little one has every thousands instead of, I think, two thousands, is, isn't that what the bridge port is? Anyway, you know, you, you have to come to terms with, are you doing the math in your head or, you, you know, all yep. this kind of stuff to center the two blocks in the middle. 
all that stuff takes time. So once you realize there's a, a learning curve to everything you set up in your shop, that eventually you're like, even if you don't have a, a front triangle in 11 minutes, you know, and you have to do a couple cuts to get it to fit right and a little bit of filing to clean up the edges, mm-hmm. you can still do that really quickly. Like it used to take me, I mean, I remember it took me a month to do my first, well, my first frame by myself yeah. after I took the class. And then now it's way less. I mean, I can do, if, you know, you can do a cross. Now you can day, do it in 25 just... days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The profitability of, uh, of the young frame builder is yeah, quite low. Yeah. No, that's, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's cool to see how stuff changes over time and like what you, um, what you have to work hard at in the beginning. Um, after a while you, you remember, you know, you yeah. get some reminder and you say, wow, I used to have to struggle so much for this. And it's not even a, not even a thing anymore. Not even a consideration. Yeah. Especially with like with welding, that's, that's one of those things. I think, you know, you've talked about this, but other, with other guys is that the bike build itself becomes the, the easier part of the equation. Um, and the fastest part of it, whereas, the communication with the customer and mm-hmm. uh you know bills and ordering tubes and yeah you know all that other stuff becomes the majority of the weekly work so the fun part is yeah is for me certainly as welding like you get in there and you're you're not stressed like i used to, i remember being totally stressed out before each bike uh i'd weld because i don't know i mean you're, you're welding the stuff that's 0.9 or 0.6 mil thick and i don't know it's it's this pinpoint thing. Yeah. I, I, I'm like, okay, I only can have one cup of coffee before I weld. I can't go on a bike ride before because my hands will be too pumped from, you know, <laughs> I won't have as much you know, coordination. I'll be tired. So then I'm like, okay, only, I can only weld in the morning from the hours of like nine to 12. <laughs> so it's just absurd. Now I'm like, whatever, I can do it at midnight if I want. But back then it was this kind That's of, funny. I was preparing for a, like a race. It was kind of stressful. You know, when I, when I started building bikes, it was all brazed stuff. And, um, and I wanted to get into TIG welding because I had learned, by the time I started making bikes on my own, I, did, I had uh, someone taught me how to TIG weld. And it was a couple years after I started making bikes on my own that I got a TIG welder. And um, I was so excited about it, and I, you know, I got it, and I started using it. And I, anyway, I would compare and contrast the processes of like fillet brazing or lug brazing. I was doing more fillets with like TIG welding, yeah. and I was saying that um, what I like telling people was that uh, it's like a, it's like if you're like a musician, if you're like a saxophonist, and um, if you're playing in a rock band, a saxophone solo, um, you would like in the recording studio, you'd probably do like a hundred takes to just get it just perfect. But like, if you're a jazz musician, you know, like you sit down and you do it, it's improv and, and you gotta be able to do it. You right. gotta be able to do it right the first time. And it's not even a perfect analogy, but it really felt like it was getting at something essential about the difference. Because for me, like if you're a relative amateur, if you can braise a fillet of brass and it looks okay, then you can clean it up with file work. Mm. It's going to look awesome if you spend enough time with the filing, uh, so long as you don't right. have terrible pinholes or the brass isn't laying every which way. But take welding, like you get what you get. And so like, you know, when you listen to some like Charlie Parker recording and it's just like perfect saxophone solo mm. and it's like, he like, it yeah. was improv, you know, like he probably had done that mm-hmm. tune a million times, but like, that's cool. Yeah. You see somebody's TIG weld and it's like, that's how the material was freezing in those patterns in the moment that they welded it. And like, it's different, but yeah. um, I don't know. I think there's something no, electric I, about I like that. that. Like yeah. in the moment, it's like, 
it can be nerve wracking because you're really trying to get every dip and every, every freeze just right. But it's also like kind of exciting. Cause it's like, this is like, it is. this is, I'm making history <laughs> seven yeah. years from now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. nobody will care, but um, it's, it's funny. Cause that's, especially when you're not doing, if you're not using the pulser and you're doing steel, cause there's no, there's only one pass on steel. So uh, yeah, what, what you lay down first is what you get. So it's stressful. Like if you blow a hole, it's going to be, you know, if it's your own frame, that's fine, but that may, you know, entail you doing everything over. So you can get through a whole frame and then load the seat stays and then just, you know, you have to take up the seat stays and do it again. But it's, uh, steel's hard in that way. I think like doing tie, it's, uh, it's a little more forgiving for, uh, because it's a thicker wall and it's also, um, I don't know. It just seems a little bit, easier to weld for me, uh, even though it doesn't, you know, I'm not, I'm no Brad Bingham with, yeah. uh, with the, with the finish, but it, you know, it's a two pass, you kind of have a warm up, and then, then you can, uh, you can always go over with a finishing pass because it doesn't have the same heat affected, uh, issues that steel does. So, but steel is one pass. That's it. You're done. Mm-hmm. Especially without a pulser. If you're, if you're laying, if you're, da- if you're dabbing instead of laying rod and using the pulser, it's, you know, it's uh-huh. going to be just as strong as something that's pulsed, but it's also just, you know, if it doesn't look pretty, you're not going to sell as many. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, uh, I forget who, who was saying this. I think it was Brad Bingham. I went to like back in uh, Louisville nabs. I think, uh, Brad Bingham did a welding TIG welding seminar that I went to, which was great. And, um, I think he was saying this in that session. I've heard maybe more than one person say this, which is that like when you're up to speed with welding titanium and with welding steel, and you have the setup and you have the familiarity that uh, welding, yeah, like welding titanium is actually a little bit easier in some ways. I'm not sure if everybody would agree with that. And I'm not very good at welding titanium, so I would prefer steel because of the familiarity. But right. um, but I think one of the reasons is that people have said that the, the weld puddle for titanium is less affected by gravity. And so like it's not, right? Because if it's, yeah. maybe that's not true, but, <laughs> but I've heard that like... Uh, uh, yeah. And maybe that's not the only thing, but uh, it's yeah, it's a little bit easier to get the beautiful result. What makes titanium hard is that the necessity of cleanliness and the the, the shielding yeah, gas has yeah. to be right there, and that if you're not used to it, the sticky like the filler rod wants to stick or something. But like when you get used to, yeah, those it's things, very grabby. Yeah, yeah, it's very sticky. That's the biggest thing is that. Yeah, I mean it's uh, the the hardest part is getting your purge set up done so you because you can't see inside the tubes you can't see argon where it's going and where it's not so you have to figure out how you get you get a full purge inside and that's kind of the i don't know it's it's a little puzzle obviously so you have to make sure you have you know all the breather holes and then you have to make sure your lines are you know clean and and all working and your heat sinks are lined up in a way that those you know you know how they're all kind of uh the heat sinks are expandable but they have little holes in them to purge. Well, uh, on my first frame, the, the heat sink holes weren't lined up with the breather hole of the chain stay. So uh, the right, the, yeah. So the, the the drive side stay was totally fine, clean purge on the inside. The the non drive side was not. So you know, it was totally purged fine. But the fact that the you know the the breather holes didn't line up on the heat mm-hmm. sink and the chain stay, it, it 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 that caused an issue. So there's a lot of stuff like that where you think you have it all dialed and then you're just hitting your head against the wall after and trying to figure out how to, how to change that. So like anything, you figure it out as you go, but the titanium wets out. It's kind of like, 
when you're using the the 880 uh, the stainless rod on steel, mm-hmm. titanium wets out like that, except even more so. So you can put a you can you don't put as much heat into the puddle, but oh my gosh, when you when you just get going on tie, it just flows so well and wets really well and so smooth, and you just you just feel like you're a god. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, steel just has this weird thing that I, I don't know what it is. It's just you think you know sometimes you're having a good day and then sometimes it just you blow holes so it's just weird yeah. especially with that 0.6 columbus life stuff it's just yeah really thin. thin yeah i haven't i haven't yeah. messed too much with stuff that thin because uh, you know i'm not uh i'm not trying to build you know it's funny to talk to older frame builders who were building back in like the 80s when lugged steel bikes were the like the high-end race weight bike. Like I remember I, I took a frame building class with Doug Faddock, who's been making bikes since the seventies. Oh, yeah. And he, yeah. I, I seem to think, I seem to remember he's saying that he knew off the top of his head, the, the weight in grams of like all these different components, you know, like a, a seat stay bridge or this pair of dropouts because it was relevant because like he was, you know, like you're building bikes for racers or people who were very weight conscious yeah. and they wanted yeah. the difference. And so like the Chinelli, yeah seat stay bridge was seven grams lighter than the whatever one the you know silva one or something and um it's just Mm -hmm. funny that seems like such a bizarro sort of circumstance to build a a bike out of steel nowadays like you know like paragon machine works dropouts are typically very chunky (laughs) and which is great because you just can rely that they're like not going to crack on you or something right but like (laughs) um you know like people don't build steel for super lightweight anymore and so it's kind of funny to think that there were eras of that now you know you might choose to lightweight tubing maybe to save some weight but also you know there's ride characteristics and there's different alloys and so like it's it's not only to to get that race weight oh for sure for sure i mean there's a, uh, you know, they, they are, there are still builders, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of course, but you know, they'll drill out everything and yeah. for the tour, you know, the tour to Concord, what is that? The Concourse de Machinas race over in Europe. They, you know, uh, will drill the chain ring out and they'll drill the dropouts out and they'll drill inside the bottom bracket. So there's the breather holes are so massive. There's no steel in between. <laughs> um, and it's like, that yeah sure that's going to save grams but you know in the big picture if you (laughs) if you want to if you if your first priority is weight you do not get a steel bike i mean yeah i know that those you know they are light like i've made a sub like a what a 3.5 pound cross race bike out of columbus life Mm -hmm. that's that's light for steel so but i mean it's going to dent easier it's going to break you know probably sooner it's it's a it rides well. I find that those, you know, even though it's a huge diameter, 38, not 438, but a 40, I think it's a 42 or 44 down tube, it still has some compliance because it's so thin walled. But, um, so it's, it's one of those, you know, you want the stiffness and race, so you increase the diameter. And then in order to get the weight down, you have to thin the wall out. Well, with tie, you don't have to do that, but you know, you use straight kids, you can use double butted, but there's so many ways to make a steel bike light, but there's compromises to each one of those ways. So mm-hmm. drilling out the holes is not a longevity, not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's, to me, it's funny. Like, I feel like it, it kind of makes sense as like an homage to a different era or like for the novelty of it. But I just, I, I can't see the logic in trying to make a, in 2019, trying to make a lightweight steel bike 
yeah, like other than for nostalgia's sake or for the novelty of saying like, you know, like I think, um, who is it? Like Rob English does some very lightweight steel bikes and like they're, they're pretty interesting in a number of ways. Like that's cool. You know, it's like, it's novel. It's not, it's not only, um, just trying to compete on weight and he's doing some really interesting stuff with that. But, uh, to me, it's, I I would like to try those. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would love to see how the three eighth inch sleep stays ride. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're very compliant, and it's since it's triangulated, yeah. it's enough. But I would be very curious le- about that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's a trip. Like going to Nats and seeing his bikes is, you know, he's one of the one of the ones that definitely stands out in my, you know, from an engineering oh, yeah. design standpoint. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, it's funny. I remember starting out, and you know, Walt from WaltWorks was a huge help. Uh, with me and with Adam, who you just interviewed, but because mm-hmm. we were both, we were all in the same town of Boulder, and and it was just, you know, Walt was the MTBR for, for, frame forum administrator. I think he still is, and he's very open about this stuff. So he sent me a a you know a spreadsheet of tube weights, wow. so you can see what the difference is between like a, you know, he was just curious one day. He's like, what is the difference between a straight gauge, you know, thirty one eight bio three five uh and a true temper double butted or something so i still have that on my computer and i i remember looking at it and being like that's really not that much weight difference but (laughs) there's other benefits to you know having double butted tubing so Mm -hmm. and 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 not just having 4130 but it's interesting because yeah you focus so much on nowadays especially everybody focuses on weight it's just it's such a non-issue if you really want a light bike just uh, go with carbon if that's your first priority yeah yeah. yeah, and you know when you get on a bike that's really lightweight, you know it's kind of it's kind of cool to like pick it up or something. But I don't know. Yeah, that's never been my first priority with bikes. <laughs> I think the first bike I ever made that's... was probably the lightest. It was a uh, you know a frame building yeah. class where I made like a fixie, so there's no brakes and you know one gear. Yeah, <laughs> and um, I think Light. that bike was yeah. like 19 pounds or something. You know, it's just it's chromoly, it's 4130, yeah, a steel fork, and I think it was 19 pounds. But yeah. uh, you can oh, do no, that if you I don't have, have a... any parts on it. Right. I have a 21 pound single speed seal bike with my fork that I made, a Unicron fork I made. So it's like a 20 pound, I think. So it's, it's, you know, that doesn't sound light by today's standards, but that still has aluminum everything. There's not a piece of carbon on that thing. Mm-hmm. So you can get, I mean, yeah, I mean, Rob and others have made whatever, 16 pound steel bikes. You can do it. Um, I don't know. It's just that it, it bothers me when that's your first, your yeah. first priority. It's like, you know, when people, I give a, in my frame questionnaire, I say, what are your, your priorities? You know, frame weight, frame stiffness, frame longevity. And I have them rank those. <laughs> and, and um, you know, nine times out of 10, it, nobody ever has put frame weight first, obviously. Because at the time I was only doing steel and not tie. So, but usually it's frame longevity or your frame stiffness for the big riders. So uh, I get a lot of tall, tall guys that are six, five plus and weigh 250 and they break everything that they they buy you know stock wise mm-hmm. and and you know i make them a big ass mountain bike frame and i'm like you, you you can't care about weight you just don't even weigh it just just let me deal with it and you'll love it and they love it and it and it lasts and yeah. it's like the best you know frame they've ever ridden because it's mm-hmm. stiff it's not this noodle so yeah that's yeah. the beauty of custom to me is that I didn't get into this to like make a stock frame and, 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 uh, you know, fit people on three, three sizes. Uh, I, I did it to, to, to really, you know, what do you want? Let's make something that you want to make. And that you, if you were a frame builder, you would, you would make for yourself. So, mm-hmm. uh, 
that's that's the whole beauty of it to me. Yeah. And yeah, that, um I was going to say that frame building class that I took, uh, I was so green to all this stuff when I took that, but I remember he was pointing out, uh, you know, our instructor, Doug Faddock was pointing out that like a lot of times production bike companies, you know, they build, maybe they do three or five sizes of a frame, but he was saying is like, you know, uh, they build the, they build the frame the same, whether, <laughs> whether, you know, your intended <laughs> use is riding it down some pavement twice a year, or if yep. you're like a linebacker and you're going to ride it down a set of stairs, you know, like they don't know, they just, it's just, it gets the tube yeah. set that it gets. And so it might, usually yeah, they, exactly. they totally overbuild it for the, for the liability. And so that they don't, they don't get a bad name for um, stuff that just breaks all yeah. the time or something. But if you, if you just overbuild well, but, stuff yeah. all the time, then it's not going to ride, you know, with any sort of, it's not going to be very comfortable or whatever and you know there's there's something to be said for um for that you know your choices with tube diameter and wall thickness for ride characteristic but like every variable of the entire build from aesthetic to sizing to yeah. you know like how, yeah. how high are the handlebars do you want to be more comfortable or do you want to like set personal records for speed or you know whatever yeah exactly i mean yeah i was listening to a another builder podcast um and it, it is uh i think dave wages david wages from ellis oh, cool it, it was just refreshing to hear that you know he uses like most of us do that if you're doing it if you've been doing it long enough and i've only been doing it what nine years now but you figure out that one size doesn't fit all for you know for for frame not just the size but the tube diameter so if you have a five you know if you have a five six whatever it is, 200 pound person versus a five, six, 100 pound person. That's a different bike. It's not, it's not just a medium or a mm -hmm. small. It's a, it's a completely different tube set. So yeah. that's, I love hearing him say that because it's just, that's, yeah. I wish more people realized that about custom frames. It's not just how it looks, the paint job. Uh, it's everything. I mean, we can dial the fork in to be a different rake for different trail figures. You can do different tubes for the fork for more compliant or more stiff if you're going to be touring. So there's all this stuff. Like I've been riding carbon forks trying to like them because they're light because I can pick up my bike and it feels lighter, but screw that. They, they yeah. lately the disc versions ride like shit. They're just too stiff. Yeah. They're built not to break. Whereas forks used to be built, steel forks are built. So they bend first before the frame breaks, whereas carbon forks are built not to break at all. So they ride like crap. I mean, that's my opinion. I think before disc brakes came into, into uh, the game, carbon forks did have more flex to them. Hmm. But man, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to put a fork on and then just sit there and you know, either ride it or just kind of flex it with the front brake locked. They don't move. It's just crazy. And then you get a steel fork on there and it flexes. It's compliant. It's, you know, it, it, it just soaks up some of the, the noise. And especially if you're doing a gravel bike or you know, a hard, a rigid mountain bike fork, you can, you can dial it in. So it's a really nice riding fork. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't make rigid forks anymore, but man, yeah, I don't know. I love this. I saw you make, you know, you make some segmented forks. I love segmented forks. I think they look really cool, yeah. but I also like that you just control all the variables. Like none of the parts are out of, you know, like, um, a Unicron fork is a hard tube to produce if you don't have a swager yeah. and if you don't have a really, I mean, you, you need a pretty nice bender to be able to do that bend. Um, yeah. it's, it's a tight radius and it's a heavy wall. So it takes a lot of muscle and it, it's just a tough bend to do. But 
anyway, um, since, since a lot yeah, of people yeah. can't make those themselves, you know, you're stuck with the off-the-shelf offerings if you want to make a steel unicrown fork. But if you want to make a steel segmented fork, you could use, there's a couple butted tubes right. that you could use here and there. There's maybe some tapered tubes that you can use, although maybe not as many options that would make sense. But mm -hmm. then you can also use um, yeah, straight gauge tubing and you can use different diameters and you can change the, you know, all the tire yep. clearance stuff and just a lot of cool things about a segmented fork. Plus they just, they look cool because you don't see them in the production bike world. So like <laughs> you see a segmented fork totally. and it just screams, yeah. it just screams at you that, um, you know, here, here we have something. Yeah. What is this? What, you know, hmm. <laughs> yeah. everybody, it's funny how that it resonates almost everybody. I mean, you, you have, uh, you know, I don't know anybody with, that's over 40 probably remembers, but yeah, the, the yo eddies of the of yeah. the 80s and 90s were, they were iconic and they just, they, it was something about it where you see, I don't know, I would see them in a magazine and just get, you know, you get like this, this feeling in your stomach, like a funny feeling, like, oh my God, that's so awesome. And it was just, <laughs> it was just one of those things. It's just, and today it still does the same thing. They just are so unique and I don't know what it is, but the, you know, Eichelhardt up in Portland still makes them and he's, he worked way back for Fat City and the way he does it is different than some others and everybody has their own touch on it. Like I, I do sleeved ones and, you know, thinner lowers. Some people use straight gauge and, you know, we, uh, Walt will use uh, his own tubes that he gets made or external butted seat tubes at one time. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's different ways for different riders and weights and yeah, you can dial it in for the, for the specific person. But yeah, I don't like when I see, you know, builders not using, uh, forks like in their repertoire, repertoire because if you're just using carbon you, you're kind of stuck with 45 mil rake and the ride of carbon if you have a steel fork you can dial it in I mean it, it's, yeah. just, it's just fun anyway they, and they look cooler I yeah. remember oh my gosh riding I mean I rode rigid forks on my single speeds in the 90s or whatever and it was just I would get the Fat City they came they came out with a new version of the Yo Eddy and I think it was Fat City and it was just they came out with you know, a couple mod a couple paint jobs of the same size, and I still have one of those. They're just beautiful. Yeah. And ever since then, they used to use. I don't know if you noticed, they used to use top tubes. So it was a, as a butted top tube, a true temper top tube, I believe, like nine six nine, and that's what they made the forks out of. Which now, with disc brakes, you'd be like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so you know, yeah. true temper made yeah. two different one inch. Sorry, I just took a bite of my leftover Chinese food. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, it's very it's good. Okay. General Sauce tofu. It's what you got to get. Anyway, um, are you are you vegan? I am. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Okay. Oh, cool. Okay. I don't know. Yeah, there's a handful of us. Yeah. Um. So anyhow, True Temper, uh, may they rest in peace. They made a um, they made a fork blade that I really liked, and they made it in two wall thicknesses. So it was a one inch to four. Well, of course, you know, bike industry is one inch to 14 millimeter tapered tube. Oh yeah. And so yeah, um, FB sevens and FB four. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And one of them was heavier wall and one of them was yeah. thinner wall. And so I had like sort of a gravel do everything bike and I made a segmented fork. And then, um, I had a little bit of like tighter tire clearance than I wanted, but I also just wanted mm -hmm. to maybe test a bike where like everything was the same except one variable. And so I remade the right. fork with the same axle to crown, but I just reconfigured it just slightly. So there's just a little bit, you know, another five or 10 millimeters of like tire clearance, which worked out fine. 
It was really cool. You know, you could yep. feel the difference between the heavier wall fork blade and the thinner wall fork oh, blade. Yeah. And uh, it was really an interesting study because usually it's just, it's hard to isolate variables and stuff. And in this case, I used a different dropout, but I don't think that really affected the, the ride of it. But everything else was the same. And it was, uh, yeah. it was really cool to like A-B test difference. that. Yeah, no, you really feel it. I'm, I'm really bummed that they, you know, obviously bummed that you tempered uh, stop making bike tubes, but uh, those I still have a few sets of the FB fours, I believe. The sevens were the lighter ones, is that right? I can't I don't remember. remember. But one of them was the thinner, and one of them was the heavier. And I still have the heavier ones for disc use. Although um, a builder in Reno out here just got uh, fairing to do a run of them, so there's you know now that that's you know, drawn up and in the works, there is a new source for those fork blades that's exciting because i was just going to say that we uh because of the podcast here although i guess i already knew but everybody who listens to the podcast would know that stephen belinke has a swager Mm -hmm. and so at these times when um when we're scratching our heads and saying how are we going to get our hands on this particular tube that we want see the network is growing hopefully through the podcast that we become more aware of the resources and then we could get a group of people together to say Belinky, we need 300 of these. I don't know. I don't know if he's open for business with that anyway, but <laughs> it's, good to know, it's good to know who has what and, uh, and try and leverage yeah. the, the sort of community to, to get the things that, that we all want. Because I was surprised when um, uh, True Temper stopped selling those. They had more than one. They had the lighter version and the heavier version. And so I remember suggesting to Nova, I was like, you guys should make at least one of these, <laughs> you know, because yep. if they were selling two sizes, that suggests that probably they had enough volume yeah. of both that you know you could sell at, one, least at least one facsimile of yeah. somewhere in the middle so yeah yeah i know i think i mean uh, yeah i mean i know you don't want to call people out but yeah nova has a lot of really good tubes on there but they, i think they're a little little bit slower to, to to jump on it because it is expensive to get a lot yeah. of uh you know, to oh, a run that's cost effective and it's forks um, so like i i can't imagine yeah. you sell nearly <laughs> as many of those like the only people who are using yeah. a one inch round fork blade is people who are building a segmented fork or doing something screwy i guess you could bend it into your own unicron if you had a bender for that but you can't put it into a cast uh, like for yeah, crown. Yeah. Those are, uh, I don't know if there's any that I've ever seen that are a casting that hold one inch round blades. There's round, ones that hold no. 24 millimeter round for track bikes, but yeah, so it's a very specific thing. It would be hard to sell many of those. Yeah, it is diff- definitely. And yeah, not many, now that carbon forks are so ubiquitous. It's yeah. like nobody, I mean, there's a lot of NorCal builders that use, uh, you know, segmented forks, but that's probably not enough to <laughs> rationalize doing a run of them. But so that's why it is true though. I like what you said about Blinky and there's others. There's kind of a, uh, I was talking with Eric from Myth Cycles uh, oh, uh, yeah. in Durango last, yep. week, last week and we were talking about sourcing titanium tubing because it's really expensive, you know, two to three plus dollars an inch for titanium. So um, obviously there's the bigger companies are not buying it at that rate. They're they're buying it, so it's a lot less because they're buying from the the the, the company itself and buying you know eight foot lengths or whatever length they can and a lot of it at once because they, mm-hmm. they you know they make a lot more frames than us. But he was saying if we could come up with a coalition to kind of pool resources and you know there's certain type builders that you know you don't you do like ten frames a year mm-hmm. you can't afford to put in whatever fifty grand to buy a, a lot of tubes. We could all pool and 
just like what this guy did with the fork blades in Reno, mm-hmm. come up with a coalition of frame builders and say, okay, we're going to buy this and we're going to get it at $1 an inch instead of $2 an inch. I mean, that would save, especially the small builder, a ton of money. Yep. And, uh, you know, logistics would be kind of rough, you know, shipping across the country, but it's, it's, it's expensive to do tie for a small builder. Yep. And we're getting the scraps from Boeing. We're getting the, the leftovers. Whereas if we, we went to the district, you know, Sandvik or whoever it is, Hayes, and bought, you know, what, what the big guys are buying, then it would just save a lot of, save a lot of money. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah, that's just a, a cool idea. I didn't, hadn't heard of and Eric, Eric uh, suggested that. So yeah. maybe we'll figure that out. Anybody listening would be, wants to get involved, let me know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's cool, like, uh, to build the networks of connection between different people who are doing, you know, the same sort of things, because you get to know, uh, get to know other people who have things in common with you and, um, and where you can, you know, work cooperatively like that. Uh, it's very cool. It's yeah. a very small community, even though there's a lot of people doing it, it's really fun to see and talk to everybody. And that's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun when you reach out to a, a fellow builder that you think is kind of untouchable mm-hmm. and they are just, um, just, I mean, I just calling out James at black sheep was just, I talked to him at Nav and he's like, Oh yeah, you're going to get installed to tie. Yeah. Come by the shop. We'll do a ride for the weekend. And we'll just, you know, I really, it'd be great to get you figured out and tie so you can really get going with that. And I'm like, who says that? That was just the nicest thing ever. Like yeah. taking a weekend out of his busy work schedule to make more frames. And it's like, that, I don't know. Anyway, I thought that was super cool. Yeah. No, I think I've always been surprised that the community is so supportive and like welcoming to other people. Or like in my interview with yeah. Adam Adam last week, you know, we were talking a little bit about networking and he was saying, you know, like, you know, like, you know, show something, like have something to show or whatever. But like, yeah, like even even still like, uh, you know, the people that have helped him and, and, the, and the willingness he has to help other people. And I think that's just kind of, I think a lot of people feel that way where it's like we realize we wouldn't know anything if nobody had ever helped us. And so it's sort of like right. you kind of owe it to yeah. the community to like pay it forward again or to pay it back yeah. or however it is. And it's just satisfying too. You totally. see, yeah. I mean, you think about being a frame yeah. builder, you're working in your shop, usually alone for hours and hours. And it's just kind of fun to like have peers who you can share that excitement and interest with. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And you get to, you realize that you're not alone in this, this, the things you stumbled on too. Cause I mean, everybody has gone through that start of learning something and it's uh, the fact that you can confide in another builder and, and them saying, Oh yeah, I did that too. Or, Oh yeah, I still do that. You know, there's mm-hmm. uh, that, that's just really refreshing. And, and I don't know, it, it makes you feel like you're not just this hack. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I think a lot, like we talked about on, you know, a little bit is that, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of a, uh, it's, it's hard to know when you're ready to start selling bikes. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I started, when I took that first class with Chris, he, he quoted, you know, Carl, everybody quotes Carl, but yeah, he quoted Carl and saying, you need to do at least 25 frames before you start selling. And at the time, not having done one, I was like, wow, that's a lot. But now I'm like, yeah, that's not enough. <laughs> um, you know, the first 25, I think are you know it depends on the person but my first 25 were eh, my first 10 were pretty bad but they're still being written so who knows anyway the the first 25 
you're, you're just figuring out the basics, really, unless mm-hmm. you do the same frame every one. Mm-hmm. Like if you did cross frames every single one, then, then you'd probably get the cross frame dialed. But then you're like, well, now what? I need to do mountain bikes for 25 frames. So mm-hmm. um, I, would, I would say it's more like, you know, right around 100, I think I started to be like, okay, yeah, I'm good. I know what I'm doing. But it's not that a, the, the first 100 are not, are not good frames. It just took you a lot longer and, and you stumbled more mm-hmm. and you, 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 uh, you obsessed more. At least I did. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway. My my approach was always like I was I mean, who's to say what the right way is? I, I put a lot of time into trying to make a, each one of them really perfect. I feel like I was I, I tend to be left to my own devices, sort of a perfectionist and like I think what's yeah. maybe more strategic sometimes and what I try to do as a correction is to like be a little bit less of a perfectionist than I want to naturally be. And um you know, not to like stamp my name on things I'm not proud of, but to realize that like there's diminishing returns on that pursuit of perfection. And so like, if you make, yeah, what I did with the first couple bikes was I tried so hard to make them so perfect. And I did all this practice work on joinery and stuff before I worked on bikes, like for a couple of years, I didn't have a full shop. Mm -hmm. I didn't have all the tools to make bikes, but like I, I just really tried to make, and I think the first ones that I made, they were very slow and not everything about them was perfect. But I think like in terms of the joinery and some of the details, I thought they were really quite good for the number of frames I had made. But then it's just, yeah. it's so incredibly slow to learn anything like that. I feel like, uh, and when I talked to Drew on this show, he's talking about how like he, the first year he just made so many bikes and you know, the point was not to sell them and the point was not to build a brand on them. Mm-hmm. It was just to learn and, and to, to expediate that process and uh, that makes sense to me. Like, if yep. you have those resources to just, like, accept that, like, it's going to take some, just some numbers, just some practice to get familiar. Yeah, what he said about, you know, that was really, was really on. About, you know, you're just going to have to suck <laughs> bleed it up and, money for a while and fork over the cash and you're going to bleed money. You're going to bleed blood. Yeah, you're just going to, but that's, that is, that's how you take place of that apprenticeship that the old guys learned with. So, you know, you don't have that. So you have to create it yourself. You have to just practice and practice and practice until you get good at it. And then that's, nobody's going to pay you to do that. I mean, if mm-hmm. they do, they're kind of not smart, but yeah, it's just, you have to do it. Like I, I would, I mean, I, my first 25 frames, you know, there's probably four of them or five of them that were mine, but then, you know, good friends, I happen to have a lot of friends that, that, that bite, ride bikes through racing or whatever. I just, over the years, I've, you know, most of my friends ride bikes. So I'm like, Oh, you want to bike? You want? And they would, they would just start coming to you. And that's probably the hardest thing about being a new builder is that all your friends want to bike. <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, it's hard to make any money off that. Cause you want to, you're giving them a deal. You're giving them mm-hmm. cotton tubing or, or whatever. And so, uh, yeah, but eventually you're, you, you, they've all gotten a bike and, and, yeah. and then you need to start selling to real people. I remember and that's the hard part is, <laughs> when I was just trying to get started, it was so difficult because it's like you think like a, an actual viable high end handmade bicycle product that is priced sustainably is going to be like a, you know, I mean, half of it maybe is the parts, but it's like a $10,000 bike or something, right? It's like a very expensive product to produce oh, in yeah. a sustainable yeah. way. Yeah. On the other hand, when you're just getting started, what you make isn't necessarily worth that much. In fact, you know, what somebody yeah. could spend for like, what, like four or 500 bucks for a Surly frame that might have more longevity and it might be better designed and it might be straighter yep. than what you can produce yep. for a thousand dollars at your cost. And so like 
the math yeah. of it is really hard in the beginning because it's like if you yeah. try and meet yeah. in the middle even ever like it sucks for both parties like there's just there's there's no good way to do it it's like they cost too much money to make that in i feel yeah. like until you um until you really get good at it it doesn't have any value to anyone else beyond right cost to even begin to be sustainable like i I just don't know how to make the math of it work until you're actually really good at it so i think like part of it is just accepting that like it's going to take a lot of practice and like expensive experience before you get to a point where it's worth anything to anyone you know if you really if you really want like if you want your customers to get something that's actually valuable like if you want them to really uh you know, have a good experience, get something that's a quality product that's not going to fall apart. And if you respect the seriousness of that. It, it, it is. I mean, that's part of the reason if, you, if you're OCD at all, it's, it's stressful building bikes for people because when you're learning, you know, you're putting your friends on bikes that you, you haven't FEA tested. You haven't, yeah. you know, been to welding school and got certificates. You know, there's a lot of guys out there given bikes away, including myself to, to, mm-hmm. to people and friends that, that are not tested. So you have to be, you know, damn sure that you're, you're ready to, to do that. And, yeah. um, it's, it's one of those things that, yeah, there's no governing body of frame building. There's no, you know, pass this test and you can start selling bikes. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like that. And there probably should be, but you know, we're, we're, we're glorified as, as, the late Bruce Gordon, we were the glorified plumbers and that we just get paid less. So we need to figure out how to make it so that there's some sort of consistency in the product that you're selling. So for instance, um, people, you know, customers know this better than anybody, but go across, I don't know, pick out 10 frame builders at random and look at their prices. Um, They'll vary from people that have been doing it 30 years that charge a lot less than certain builders that have been around for five years. And it's, it's hard to, to, to know what to charge. And if you did it from a straight, you know, cost basis where you're saying, okay, I live in Northern California. It's expensive to live here. I need to make this much money to pay my bills and to pay my rent. Um, that would be more than for you in, in New York state, I imagine. Yep. So, is that fair to the customer to say, oh, I want I want Meriwether to make a frame, but it's going to cost more because he lives in California. Like, no, you can't do that. So you mm-hmm. have to kind of take away some of that variability and charge what other people are charging yeah. or in the in that ballpark. So that's kind of the, this is where I think it gets really sticky or with uh, new builders is, yeah, what at what point do you charge whatever it is, yeah. the, the going rate for a custom frame? And everybody's different in their experience. Everybody's different in what they offer. You know, mm-hmm. are you all a cart or is it more of a stock yeah. frame that you kind of just, is it wet paint or is it powder? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's, because this is a frame building podcast, you can get into the nitty gritty of that and talk like that. But, if, yeah. you know, I would never talk like that to, to people that would, you know, customers, even yeah. if there are some out there. You know, them. when I was, <laughs> Not to say that I was ever really a professional. I did the thing that a lot of frame builders do, which is that like I aspired to one day make my living from it, and I did it very much in a hobbyist sort of way. But like I tried to have a professional face to it enough that like you know there was a brand name and there was a website with some copy that I at least spent a little bit of time on, and I went to a trade show uh, once with a booth 
showing my bikes. And so I did some of that stuff and I was trying to like, you know, build a vehicle, a brand or whatever. And so anyway, um, because I had listened to chatter about, you know, frame building and stuff for a while, I felt like one of the things that I would hear from people was like, oh, these people, like they don't charge enough. And then like that makes issues for us, the frame builders who are trying to make an honest living. And I felt like it was less controversial or like less um, complicated if I charged too much than if I charged too little. I was afraid that if I like, you know, if I said that I would make a frame for a thousand dollars, which was maybe, you know, like I think my price was like 1500, but if you actually had any actual options, it was more like, you know, 2200 or something, which is still like, it's all over the map if you look at people's websites. So like who's to say if it's high or low, I I didn't really have that much experience. So it's probably priced really high, but if you look at what it costs to to keep the doors open, it's nothing. It's a pittance. And so, um, anyway, yeah. I've yeah. always, and like, I didn't sell any bikes. I sold like, you know, one or two bikes at like the price that I said. And then the rest of them were just for me or like my sibling <laughs> right, or something. Right. So like, anyway, um, yeah. it, it, it didn't end up mattering that much, but like, I think there's something to be said for yeah. if you, if you price it high, it's like, maybe nobody will buy it, but then at least you didn't like undercut other people. And, <laughs> and sometimes too, you know, like, what do you sign yourself up yeah. for? It's like, Sometimes uh, you get partway into it and then you screw something up and now you got to buy parts all over again or like some, you know, UPS damaged it in shipping to the painter and you got to build it a second time or the customer's having issues. And like some of these things that you feel like you want to, you want to do right by your customer or your buddy or whoever it is that you're building it for. If you, if you were kind of like taking a bath on it in the first place, you really don't have any money yeah. to work with once they're having issues. And so like, I feel like it's, yeah. uh, it's kind of easy to err on the side of too much money. Then again, you're not going to sell any, so you won't get any practice. So I don't know. It's kind of damned well, if you do, damned if you don't. And that's what I found is that it's, um, you know, starting out, you always charge less. And there's it's pretty common to do that for at least a year, if not two, where you charge 1600 or whatever, 1200 you know, really low to get the business, to get your name out there to, you know, and that's accepted. That's okay. But if you're still, you know, like, if you're five or 10 years in doing that, that, that will be frowned upon and people will talk behind your back probably. But yeah, I mean, when I was, I was, uh, when I moved to California, uh, in 2012, I kind of, you know, I I left my job in Colorado and I wanted to make this full-time gig. So did all the business license, got the insurance and started, you know, full board charged. I can't remember, I think 1400 and I got a lot of interest. I, I, you know, first, couple of years I made probably 25 frames a year which was a lot at the time mm-hmm. for me um and then it you know it, you do it, it that's what happens is there's people out there that don't want to pay 2000 or 3000 for a frame but and they 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 will pay you know 15 1600 for a frame and then they'll be able to build it up with nice parts and stuff so I was kind of the new builders kind of satisfy that niche of people I believe that you know that subset of people is even in the same market as the people that are that are looking at three thousand dollar frames, you know. So it, I think that it's kind of self-selecting by price. So there, because there are you know Surleys and Salsas and all these other steel frames out there, these people that are using the the newer builders are in that market. They're mm-hmm. looking at a Surly and they're like, well, wait, if I just paid this much more, I could get a Merriweather or whatever. Um, and it would be custom. I could get the paint job I wanted. I could do the, the look that I wanted. I could get sliding dropouts or whatever. 
And that to me is a very useful uh, mark, you know, function for, for newer builders. Of course, then you have to step it up to whatever you, you, you've done that kind of apprentice beginning and now you're, you've established yourself, your, your bikes, you know, demand is greater. So you raise prices. Mm-hmm. Well, usually your demand will drop. <laughs> so yeah. um, not for everybody like Adam, I guess, has experienced increased demand when he raised, when he raised his prices. So he's like, I just keep raising prices and I get more demand. There's the idea that they're worth more if they have more money. So that didn't happen with me, but um, so I've dropped prices again. So mm-hmm. it's one of the things you got to find out where you're, where you fit in the market. And it's, it's not necessarily true. My point is, but it's not necessarily true that if you charge less, you're taking away customers from those, you know, charging, you know, those builders that charge more mm-hmm. because you're not even in that same, yeah. uh, the, the, the group of people that you are looking at or going after are, are, are totally different. Yeah. Like it's kind of like tie versus steel. So if you if you're going for the Thai road market, um, those people aren't even looking at twelve hundred, fourteen, six hundred dollars steel frames. It's, it's a totally yeah. different group of people. So yeah. anyway, but I got a little bit of I got a little bit of talking to when I moved to California. Was charging twelve hundred dollars a frame and fourteen hundred dollars <laughs> a frame, and some of the local builders, you know, not some of them, but one in particular was like, you know, you should probably charge more. You really think nice stuff. You you should probably charge more. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah, and it's funny too now when I'm making tools and stuff. Um that's a little bit tricky to know too. I mean, it's always hard to know to price stuff. I mean, one way to price things is to just, you know, things being priced based on um what people will pay for it, you know? So like if if uh right. if it's going to cost you x amount of dollars to make it sustainable and you think the most people would really pay for it on a regular basis is like lower than that, then uh, one way of saying it is like, well, I got to put the price higher anyway because that's what's going to take. But you probably won't sell any. It just like it, you know, it's just not a project that you can really take on sustainably. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so anyway, it was funny at Nabs. People would um, walk around the show and they'd stop at my booth and I had my tube bender there and, and the other smaller goods. And the tube bender was you know priced at fifteen hundred dollars. And so frame builders would say some frame builders especially would be like, oh man, ouch or something, or they would they would appreciate oh, really? the yeah. details of it. But some a couple people would vocalize the cost. And then there were some people who would walk around who themselves are machinists and they work in some industry in the bike world or they just happen to be at the show and they noticed some machine goods and so they wanted to check it out. And I got this from anyone who machine goods. They said, this is not priced nearly enough. And they're like, some people were right. like, oh yeah. man, if I made this for some of my medical contracts, <laughs> this would be $5,000. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, it made what? me feel like yeah. I'm giving it away. And I came back and yeah. I did, I did more number crunching about it. And I, I felt like it was actually, it was close to a sustainable price. It, it's completely related to the volume that you do because all the time with setup yeah. and programming mm-hmm. and, and making the marketing stuff. So anyway, it's, it's interesting whenever you're selling stuff to think about different models because I tend to think that um, you, I tend to think you know you can price stuff based on what people think it's worth and what they will pay for it and if you can sell it at that price to where you know people will pay for what they think it's worth and that also works out for you then you have a viable project and if if people yeah. won't pay yeah. because they don't think it's worth what it would actually cost for it to be sustainable then I feel like it's not really a viable project. And you have to like go back to the drawing board and like tweak something, which is tricky because frame building, you know, until you have a name that um, that is in demand or right. like a brand that people aspire to have or something, it's 
it's like you have to build that demand somehow. You have to like uh, you have to kind of persevere yeah. through it. It's it's not easy. No, it's not. And like I said earlier, it's just there's a lot of people doing it, and there's this whole do-it-yourself generation now that the YouTube generation, where you know, I don't know if demand will eventually drop off because people will just build their own custom frame. You know, they're taking mm-hmm. classes. There's so many classes now you can take and build your own frame that 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 also is taking away part of the custom frame market because they're like, well, I could pay this guy to do it for that, or I could for the same price, I could go mm-hmm. to a class. Or less, less, you know, and learn how to do it myself, and just have a custom frame. So yeah, um, the, you know, and I think probably for some people that might scratch the same itch, and I imagine for other people it probably wouldn't at all. You know, I think if you think of a custom bike as like a as like a high end good, like a fancy watch or something, yeah, then yeah. then it doesn't scratch the same itch at all, right? Because it's one no, is to buy no. a luxury product or service, and the other one is to make it. But I do know uh, there have been a handful of builders that I've talked to on the show and elsewhere who talked about, you know, having been like, um, serial custom bike owners and buyers before taking a <laughs> class and getting into it. And so, you know, for me, that yeah, wasn't true. the case, but, uh, I don't know if I'm ever like independently wealthy, I'm probably going to buy a handful of my favorite builders bikes. Cause it'd be cool. <laughs> I would love to have yeah. them. So like, I guess, you know, there's, there's gotta yeah, be a little bit fun. of, I mean, um, crossover between the, the different sort of customer types. Yeah, and I think that I think Don at Anvil said it to me when I was just getting started. It was, you're not selling bikes, you're selling yourself, and it's true. You're that's another way of saying you have to be good at branding your product. Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of good. There's a lot of people making good bikes out there, and what distinguishes you from everybody else is how you how you sell it to people. I mean, how you sell yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have a story? Do you have some way of, uh, just, you know, separating yourself from everybody else? It's, it's, um, there's a lot of ways to, to do that, but as the marketplace gets more and more full, you, there's, it's even harder to do that because there's just more of us. So, yeah. um, I remember it, it, when I was, when I was riding and racing back in the nineties, spot bikes, you remember spot bikes, they're still around, but back then they were owned by a different, uh, a, mm, a, a okay. couple in Canada and they were just, you know, husband and wife, you know, friends. And they, um, they sold more t-shirts and that's kind of their, that was like the dummy axles of the anvil. They sold, they were, they were, they, they had to just have, had that image that's you know the spot single speed that was their it was their core kind of it was during the big single speed craze of the early the late 90s and early 2000s it was just uh so they, their, their bread and butter were like t-shirts their logo mm-hmm. so they they would just sell out of them everywhere and you know bikes were you know they were selling bikes but it wasn't that wasn't what was making them the most you know paying the bills wow. so that kind of really hit home to me it was like wow you know if you can make your business something that people want to buy the shirt of and don't even ride a bike, that's, you know, that's kind of cool. Yeah. They want, it, it's like, you know, if you think about anything else other than bikes, Billabong or, or, or you know, all those surf brands, like you, you would go to a store, you don't, I don't surf, but I would buy that shirt. You know, mm-hmm. it's the same kind of ideas. Like you want something that people will buy regardless if they buy your bike. Cause that's not, you know, you're going to sell very few bikes compared to what you, you know, other stuff you could sell. And that's why it's cool to see Sklar and others getting into products other than bikes that they're branding, you know, the Thai Bahong and then the, uh, 
the like I'm going to be making with um, Eric from Myth. We're going to be making uh, bar spacers. So I'm, I'm coming out with some titanium handlebars. And you know that the, there's the, like the problem solvers or other handlebar shims that clamp to the 318 you know, yep. stems because all stems are now 318. Well, all the problem solver shims are just, they're very narrow. So I, I just I just made one for uh, a tour I did. I did the, some of the Colorado Trail with, with some friends. Mm-hmm. And I made it so it was three inches wide. And the three inches wide is, you know, it spreads out the, the stress of, of that. But it also makes it so you can clamp everything under the sun, like your GPS, your light, your uh, whatever, your quad lock phone carrier mm-hmm. to that bar without having to use tape or shims or whatever. So it's just like simple stuff like that. It also I also made it have indicator marks so you can really easily put it centered on the stem. Mm-hmm. So you know with the and and and, and centered on the bar. So it's just one of those simple things that those things make life easier when you're using a regular twenty two. Uh, titanium bar versus something that's bulged like to a 31 eight. Yeah. You know, so anyway, there's, there's little things that you learn over time that you, you like, Oh, well, where's that in the marketplace? It's amazing. Bikes have been around this long. There's still like so many little things that can be improved upon. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, there's a lot of that. Uh, I find more and more that I'm having ideas or people will message me ideas and they'll say, you know what you should make? And then it's like, oh man, that's not a bad idea. But like, I got, I got yeah. a lot of ideas and ambitions and plans already. And like, I don't have enough time to do the ones that I want to be doing. Uh, so yeah, there's always oh, totally. more, like, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there. You know, you, you, you're interested in a certain like niche or community or something and, uh, you pay attention long enough and you realize that not everything does already exist. That's surprising. And you think that everybody knows everything and then you realize like, Oh wow, I might know as much as them. And it's just, yeah. You, yeah. It, anyway, Absolutely. It's I had that experience when I was um, new to bikes. I just assumed that like, I, I think I was talking about that somewhere in my YouTube series with the mountain bike build, which is that like when I was newer to bikes, I just kind of assumed that like people had figured out bikes, smarter people who had done more of it and been right. around longer, they had figured it out. And so like, I'll just like copycat them for a while. I'll get to understand what they know. And then like, I will know the things. And like, the more you do it, the more you realize like, what the, like the <laughs> Steve Jobs quote that's everywhere about like, you know, the world was created yeah. by people who aren't smarter than you. But like, it's, it's really true. It's like, there's, there's it's just true. like, um, yeah. I mean, you look at like the mountain bike trends of the nineties, they seem like laughable today. You know, the, the difference between the way that a mountain bike looked then mm-hmm. and now and, um, you know, you yeah. can still have a lot of fun on an old mountain bike, I'm sure. But, like, the technology is pretty cool. And it's just going to keep moving yeah. forward. And you can be a part of figuring out what the new trends are going to be. That's, I think that's exciting. Well, that's why the custom market is so cool. It's, it's you know, we're the custom builders are usually the ones to they're, – they're the ones able to jump on a, any kind of trend really quickly and prototype it or, or test it out. You know, if you can build a frame in a day instead of having to draw and go to China and do it, then, yeah, you, you can – you know, that's why it seems like to me that custom builders were the first to have fat bikes, the first to have plus bikes, the first to have um, gravel bikes. All these things that are the newest, latest trends, mm-hmm. the big companies kind of follow suit and copy those things like, oh, well, they did this, so, yeah, let's do this, and – they kind of take those elements that they like from whatever the custom builders figured out in their testing. So it happens with everything, you know, bike bags and um, the whole bike packing thing has exploded like that too. So it's, it's funny. Um, yeah. I think I can't remember what it is called, but it's like that. 
uh, something to the effect that um, if, if someone if someone ex- says they know a lot or it's somebody they're talking about and says they they figure it all out that don't listen to them they're, they're, they're it's the exact opposite the ones that are like toiling away in their shop and like i don't know what the fuck i'm doing that <laughs> yeah listen to them because they they have a bigger grasp on the overall picture probably and know uh-huh. the complexities of every in and out so yeah, yeah. anyway i got kind of that <laughs> i got a question on my list which i asked to most people which is uh advice that you have to other builders and or uh, if it makes you more comfortable to answer it this way, which is advice that you'd give to your younger self on your, on your own journey. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that something that I think that would, I would have benefited from a lot when I started out was, um, you know, you develop patience through frame building because if you don't, you're just going to throw stuff and, 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 and quit. Um, like about year five of building, I almost quit because I'm like, this is not getting any easier. It's, it's just taking as just as much time as it did two years ago, et cetera. But having that patience and, you know, being okay, filing joints and being okay, taking the time it needs and not just uh, rushing through stuff. Eventually it'll, it'll come it'll eventually you will get those processes worked out. So you'll be able to do these things a lot faster than you could, you can at the beginning. So that's number one. And number two is like kind of what Adam was saying, like come, come to the table with something like, don't just go to a class. Don't go to UBI and not know how to do anything. Like go to UBI after you bought a welder or bought a brazing setup and, and practiced because you will get so much out of that. After, you know, if you, if you go into it with that knowledge, uh, or that experience, or just a little bit of knowledge of what it takes to, to weld a bike or braise a bike together, you're going to get so much more out of that class than you, than you would if you didn't do that. And I think that's something that I wish I had done. Um, because TIG welding is not something you learn in five days, I mean, or two weeks or, or two months yeah. even. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. I mean, people go to classes for years to figure this stuff out. So, you, you it, it, if you're really serious about building bikes for a living, especially, or just even just to do projects around the house or whatever, um, by well, I think Wade said that too. Yeah, of, of did, I just yeah. thought that was such an awesome advice. Yeah, it's, it's like, like I exactly want to build bikes. No, you don't. No, if you did, you'd yeah. buy a welder. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, I like it's, that. It's, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Calling them on. Anyway, it. that's it, well, yeah, it, it it's, there's that romanticism of the bike building world. Mm-hmm. And I st- it's ironically, I still have it. Like I look at Steve Potts and I think he's like this untouchable God of, of titanium. And, um, in reality, I'm, I'm slowly approaching him, but he's still like worlds above me in my eyes. And mm-hmm. everybody has that with bike builders, you know, cause it's, it's the thing that you enjoy so much. You, you, you have this personal relationship with your custom bike or your bike, you know, any bike. And the person that creates that is, is, is elevated. So you want to be that, you know, that's mm-hmm. what I was, when I got into building, that's what I was looking at. I was looking at those people like Steve and, and, uh, and, um, you know, Kent Erickson and, and those yeah. guys that just created the stuff that made you have fun, allowed yeah. you to have fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I no, think. I relate completely. I think there's a lot of that where you, um, 
it's easy to like put those people on a pedestal because it's like, especially like if you want to be a builder and you see someone else who's doing a good job of it, it's like, not only are they making the cool thing, but they're kind of like leading the life, at least for me, the way I saw it, they're like leading the life that I aspire to lead, you know, to like be the person making the thing and to be the person who has figured it out and had like sort of established a name with it. Like I, and it's funny too, because it's like, to me, they felt like sort of like all these builders, a handful of them who have already been guests on the show feel like people who are just like, you know, iconic, uh, they'd be on some pedestal or something, but they're just like average people. And like, nobody really cares about custom bike except like a couple people, you know, <laughs> like the people who go to trade right. shows and their customers, like, it's not that it's not yeah. like, it's not like you're going, uh, it's not like you look up to, you know, bono or some like super famous person and they're constantly bombarded by the paparazzi or something it's like they're totally average (laughs) average people and nobody cares except for us so like you can you can send them an email and unless they're a jerk they're gonna they're probably gonna be real friendly to you yeah it's totally funny because if you if you were to like you you get that when you you know like i put that as my you know primary job now is that when you fill out applications for something like, you know, you want a loan for a car or whatever, and you say you're a, a custom frame builder or a metal fabricator, they're like, that's a thing. You know, they're <laughs> like, I didn't know people actually did that still or whatever. So yeah, uh, they thought, I just thought that was made in China. Or you know, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yes, people do that. <laughs> At least they try. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I think that kind of rounds out the questions. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's cool to hear your story, and uh, and I always appreciated you being part of the community. And I always look forward. I feel like you're doing you're doing a little bit more of the like kooky and more custom bikes than um, you know. I, I understand all the different flavors and stripes of frame buildership. The folks who have their tightly defined product line and just you know they're looking for the customer for whom that fits, and I get that. But I also you know mm-hmm. I can appreciate that for someone like you, it's a little bit more of like a particularly custom experience and you're doing elevated chain stays and you're doing, I feel like you, you know, I can see that you're trying stuff and you're entertaining people's like you did, you know, at least one thirty six or, you know, it's, it's cool. And so I appreciate yeah. the flavor that you bring to things. And, um, and I appreciate you being the guest on the show. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it's, I just, I think that's a good thing to point out is that what I what I do is not necessarily the the right thing to do if you're trying to make a living at this, but it's just the way I see the custom market and what I would what I want out of a builder. So mm-hmm. you know, people might people might not want to you know they may not, they may not know what geometry and fit they want, and it's easier just to get like a, a semi stock frame. But you know, I'm there for the people that kind of have these weird ideas and they want plus bikes with short chain stays and fat bikes with elevated chain stays and stuff like that because it's hard for me to do the same thing over and over. It's like riding bikes. Like it's hard for me to ride the same trail over and over. I want to try different things. And it's just so fun to be able to put a bike together and, and, and so many different ways yet it's the same thing. Yeah. So there's so many options these days. It's insane. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Options. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People anyway, well, thanks for, to, to explain yeah. what I just was joking at. I don't know if everyone is clued into this, but when people talk about standards like bottom bracket standards and, uh, and, and dropout standards, axle hub stand. Yeah. All that stuff. Some people will yeah. retort that they're not standards, they're options. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Anyway. They're options. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a, it's revolving door. It's just every yep. year almost something new comes out and tires. Yeah it's funny that tires have become kind of the, the driving force behind bikes, bike builds now. It's just yeah. 
one of your first questions is what tire size do you want to fit or what yeah. wheel size is and it? which and, totally makes sense actually but like it's yeah. kind of funny yeah. yeah it never used to be that way i mean it was when i was starting it was 26 by two that was it you know so wow. anyway for mountain bikes cool well, anyway yeah thanks joe and i appreciate you uh you know interviewing me yeah, no, I, I appreciate you being on the show. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's mm-hmm. every week. We got a lot of people to get to. I definitely wanted you on the show, and I definitely want to get so many others. And um, yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Bye.